You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We are on page two, and we just begin here with, uh, with the course description. So, here it is. For the past 2,000 years, Jesus has been sovereignly building his church. He's used all manner of people, places, and events to shape the theological traditions that continue to influence people today. That is a key idea. Ideas have consequences, and these consequences go way beyond us, okay? and often in an unforeseen way. Travel back in time with us as we spend five months together tracing the historical development of theology, and in the process gain a much greater understanding for those who have gone before. In the end, we will be sobered by the constant threat of error while being motivated to take our place in a long line of faithful witnesses who have stood the test of time. Right? So, we'll, at the end of this, we'll figure out, <laughs> Lord willing, where our slot is in this long chain of faithful men. Okay? Now, um, this idea of tracing the historical development of theology, if you go to page 45, and this is probably as good a place as any to orient you to that. So you'll notice page 44 says appendix. So 45 and following are appendices. So they are documents, um, most of which we will refer to as we proceed through. They are um, placed in there chronologically as to how, they, how we'll interact with them over the development of time. Okay? And, um, but page 45, I wanted to call out uh, to your attention right now and just take a look at it because what we are talking about is the development of theology. So, Christian theology did not descend by parachute as a completed package. It was forged in the fires of controversy over centuries and centuries of time. And what that means is that uh, what we understand the Bible to teach and what is commonly referred to as Christian orthodoxy um, didn't all develop at one time, but it developed progressively as the church was forced often by heretics, and so this is, you know, man designed it for evil and, and God means it for good. And so because of the constant attack of heres heretics and heresy, the true believers were forced to go to the Scriptures, develop um, a theology that, that was faithful to the Scriptures, and then hammer back against error. And in the process, orthodoxy was formed. Okay. So this parallel structure of systematic theology and church history is worth spending a few minutes thinking about. And you'll notice that on the, in the left-hand column here, you see an outline of systematic theology. So if you have ever encountered a systematic theology textbook, you will find that this is the order that they are, almost without exception, laid out in. That they begin with bibliology, right? The doctrine of Scripture. And by the way, um, all of these Greek words are composed of the word logos, which is word. So it's um, the ology refers, is a derivative of logos, word. And then the front part 
is uh, what the word is about. So, bibliology is a word about the Bible. Right? So, it begins with the doctrine of Scripture, and then following to what's called theology proper, the doctrine of God, Christology, the doctrine of Christ, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, anthropology, the doctrine of man, soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, and eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Okay? That is the way a typical systematic theology would be laid out for you. Now, questions? Yes, and I should have said that. Say what? Hamartiology would be a subset of, of anthropology, but yes. Um, what was I going to say to you? Oh, questions. <laughs> Definitely want questions. And hoping to stimulate interaction among us along the way. And we'll, um, we'll talk a little bit more about that here in a few minutes. So what you see here on the, on the, in the right-hand column are these, these idea of parallel developments in church history. And this just illustrates my point that theology, orthodoxy, was forged in the fires of controversy. So you can see here in the, in the second and fourth centuries that Gnosticism and the whole question of the canon of the New Testament was the major issue that confronted the church. Okay? So beyond that, we move into the Trinitarian controversies of the fourth century and then the Christological controversies of the fifth century, the Pelagian controversy of the fifth through seventh, and then the, um, the, you know, the Reformation and the recovery of the gospel uh, from the, the barnacles of Roman Catholicism. Ecclesiology is, is uh, what is the church? And um, that uh, was, is, a, is a fascinating period of history to, to think through and talk through. And then ecclesiology, the doctrine of last things, is the, um, from a church history point of view, is, the, is dispensationalism and Adventism and so forth, which is a 19th and 20th century uh, phenomena of church history. Okay? So you can kind of see the parallels of how they lay out. All right? Does that make sense? Questions? Comments? All right? Good. Okay, so back to page two. Aims and requirements, what are we after? Right? If you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. So what are we after? To increase the student's awareness of the flow and issues of church history. So no one's going to be uh, an expert in church history. There is no experts in church history in this room. Right? Nobody is an expert in this room. Okay? But it's to increase all of our awareness with regard to the flow and the issues of church history. It's to, it's to help you to think through these issues. To develop appreciation for the people who have gone before you in the faith. They are real people, flesh and blood people with strengths and weaknesses, sometimes glaring weaknesses, and yet God uses them often in powerful ways. Okay, that's super encouraging. Because why? Because we all have glaring weaknesses. Okay? We all have glaring weaknesses. And yet God uses us. Okay, so be encouraged. To formulate a context in which to evaluate the present situation of the church. Again, as we look around us today at the, at the scenery of evangelicalism, which is just 
littered with, with broken, smoking heaps of former Orthodox churches. How do we get to this place? It'll be an interesting discussion when we get there in late April or May, okay? Uh, to help the student understand that theology is always developed in the crucible of controversy, as we've said, you'll hear that over and over again. And then to help the student to see the providential hand of God as he sovereignly leads and guides his church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Okay? He is building his church. It's, it's really a marvel, if you think about it, that the church of Jesus Christ is here 2,000 years later with all of the screw-ups of those that have been in leadership, all of the opposition, demonic opposition, and yet the church uh, not just survives but thrives and continues to move forward. Okay? It's a testament to God. Okay. You've heard me say this in Proverbs class. You'll get out of it what you put into it. All right? So you heard me say about Proverbs. Proverbs is a contact sport. So is historical theology or the doctrine. What are we calling this? The history of doctrine. Okay? It is a contact sport. In other words, if you come on a Monday night and you haven't thought about anything since the prior Monday night, uh, you will profit little. You will profit, but you will profit little. You will profit more if you think about it between classes. You'll profit much more if you, if you engage in the work that I'm about to outline for you over this period of time together. And you will profit even more than that if you take advantage of various opportunities to get together with a couple of other brothers along the way, periodically, and just kind of talk about things. You know? Wow, what did you think about, etc.? Martin Luther, right? What a contradiction that man was. And um, it will just help cement in your mind what you are learning and, and be a great encouragement to your brothers. Okay? So there's kind of levels here, and I would just encourage you to uh, engage at the highest level that you're capable of engaging at. It's a priority. You're here on a Monday night. You've already made that commitment. So don't waste it. Don't waste it. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so required reading. We are requiring now. Can I require it? No, but there's a sheriff over there. He can require it. <laughs> I can't require it. I call it required reading, but just because I don't want to call it suggested reading because I know what happens to suggestions. <laughs> So, we've chosen this text for you, okay? Everybody have it? If you don't, you need it, okay? $15 on Amazon, get it. And it is, um, okay, so one of my observations about men in general is that we are not good readers, okay? We just don't read that much for the most part. So, for some of you, I get it. This may be the thickest book that you will read or have read in quite a while. I'm not judging you, well, honestly. Okay? But, again, there's so much here between these covers. It's worth it. It's worth it. So, this thing is set up to make it easily digestible. Easily digestible. In other words, there are 40... Okay, let me back up. Most men don't read. Most men definitely don't read biographies. Okay? The biographies. You mean like three, four, five hundred pages about one guy? Yeah, that's actually what I'm talking about. Because 
it's just so fascinating to, to read about Luther, for example, and to see the providential hand of God in his life and how God used him. Okay. But I get it. That's, you know, so, so you can handle Luther in five pages. And that's the way this is set up. There's 40 men in here. Uh, no, they're not all men. I think there's some women in here. In fact, I know there's some women in here. Okay. Um, they're not all on our team. Okay. They don't all wear white hats. There's, yeah, there's some pretty nasty heretics floating around in these pages. Okay? But, um, and so this influential Christians, Christians probably should have had quotation marks around it, okay? Um, More than half of these people, if they made application to join KCC, the elders would say, you're out of here, okay? So, but they have had an influence for good or for ill, for good or for ill. And the way the book is set up is there are approximately five-page biographies on each of these 40 characters. So here's what I'm asking for you. I'm asking you to read three of them per week. Three. So that's 15 pages. Okay? If you read five days a week, that would be three pages a day. Okay? You got it? All right. So I'm asking you to read three a week, beginning with the first three due next week. And then it'll just be every week. You know, you can figure it out. Just, you know, tick them off in the, in the um, what do they call it, table of contents. Just tick them off, keep track of them. All right? So next week, open your book, take a look. The introduction, you go, oh, he's not going to say anything about the introduction, so I can skip over that. Uh, Yeah, you could, but it'd be silly to do it. The point of the introduction is where he does emphasize that just because someone is influential doesn't mean that he agrees with them. Yes. Thank you. Yes, thank you very much. You're right. He says in the introduction, just because somebody's influential doesn't mean the author agrees with them. Okay? The author is orthodox. Okay? Um, He's one of our guys. Good guy. Okay, um, so he's not because he put him in there doesn't mean he agrees with what they're saying. They have just been influential. All right, as I say, for good or for evil. Okay, so next week we the three that are due are Clement of Rome. That begins on page seventeen and runs to page twenty-two at the top, and then Ignatius of Antioch. Okay, and now. Um, Something you might do, uh, you might find helpful, is to, uh, it's not always revealed in each one, but you can always find the answers on the internet if it's not revealed here, is to just pencil in the top. That's what I do when I go through. I put in his birth and death dates. Okay? It just helps me locate them later in history. So coming to Rome, and you'll, you'll see this a lot, capital C, small a, period. And now uh, what that means is approximately. It's a Latin word which escapes my... Um, circa, is that it? Circa, thank you. And uh, so that means that these are approximate dates, okay? And you'll understand why here in a little bit later. So circa 90 to 100 is not his birth death, but that's roughly his time period. Somewhere in there he was significant. Okay, so we've got Ignatius of Antioch. And then third is Justin Martyr. 
circa 100 to 165. So that's a better feel for his birth and death dates. Okay, so that's for next week. Now, so you got to read those. And then what I want you to do is while you are reading those, if you look at page three in your syllabus, what you find are four questions. These questions are designed to guide your reading. Okay? You do not need to write out answers. If you're a high achiever and you want to write out answers and just photocopy these pages 40 times and write out answers, you know what? Man, that'd be fantastic. But you don't have to. I'm not asking you to do that. All I'm saying is keep these things in mind as you're reading. So that's why I included it here for you. Because what I'd like is when we get back together, we're going to, in our beginning time together, we're going to talk about what we've read. So that I'm not the only guy talking. So I want to encourage you to interact with each other with regard to the things you've read. So it's simple. What individual stood out to you from this week's reading? So you got three people. Pick one. Who stood out to you? What was the issue of their day? So, you know, if you can boil it down, what, what was it that was swirling around them in their day? What stands out either positively or negatively about their life? Okay. So is there a right or a wrong answer there? No. Nope. It's from you. I just want to know for you when you read it, what stood out to you? A guy had curly hair. I hate people with curly hair. I mean, if that's what stands out to you, then, you know, fine. But what stands out? Okay. And then what lesson, either good or bad, can we learn from their example? Right? So... There's a method to my madness here. This is designed to help you to begin to learn to read biographies, how to approach a biography. These are the kinds of questions you would want to take into a, you know, a 400-page biography on Martin Luther. Okay? Everybody understand what we're asking for here? Good. All right, so next week you're going to read one, two, three, the first three. And do what? And the intro if you're an overachiever. Exactly. Yes. All right. We good? We good. Okay. The other part, so there's a reading part and then there's a writing part. And so what I'm asking for you to do is at the end of the, our time together in May, and I would suggest you begin working on it before May, and I'll just tell you this, obviously, you're going to do it or you're not going to do it. If you do it, I will invest the time necessary to look at it and give you some feedback on it. Okay? So if you invest your time, I'll invest mine. That's our trade. Okay? Fair enough. So what I'm asking for you to do is to prepare a timeline that includes 100 dates from church history. Right, so that's 2,000 years of church history. I'm asking you to select 100 dates that stand out to you as significant for the reasons, you know, whatever reasons. Right? So in your appendix, at the very back of your appendix, so it's page 90. No, it's page 88. No, it's page 87. No, it's page 86. Okay. 
This is just a couple of examples of ways to do it. I'm not telling you you have to do it this way. I'm merely providing you with an illustration, an example. The idea is to produce something that you want to keep. It's worth keeping. Fold it up. Put it in your Bible. You'll have it. So this was done in recognition of what was going on in the world and what was going on in what is known as the Western Church and the Eastern Church. Okay, and that has to do with the division of the Roman Empire that we're going to get to later. And then you can just see the dates as they spill out there. All right. And then when we get over to page 90, that's another sample. That one is less complicated, I guess you'd say. There's another way to do it. So, could you go through there and just pick the hundred dates that are already on there and write them all down? Yeah, you could. You could. That's what you want to do? Sure. Yeah, I mean, there's no grading. I mean, the, the idea is this for you. It's for you. To have something that you've thought through, you've produced, you have available to you, that you can begin to think in timelines and begin to mentally slot in periods of history. Okay, this happened this time, and this happened this time, and this happened this time. And I, and I got a feel for chronology, the sweep and flow of history. Okay? Is that making sense to you? Okay. Questions? All right. Beautiful. We are making fantastic progress. Okay, page four. All right. How many of you have ever built a house? How many of you have remodeled a house? Okay. When you build a house or you do a house remodel, one of the things that becomes obvious to you rather quickly is you don't get everything you want. Okay. You have to make trade-offs. You can't get it all. And you have to prioritize what's important, what's not important, and... Hopefully, you make good decisions on the important things and the things that are less important, they pass, pass you by, okay? Why am I telling you that? Well, because we're looking at 2,000 years of history, and, and we're doing it in a reasonably compressed period of time of an hour and a half once a week. We're not going to get everything. We can't get everything. We can't cover everything. There are significant people, events, Okay? that occurred, that were, if we talk about at all, will be in a passing way, or we won't even mention them. You would be free to ask questions, bring it up. If it's, you know, we could talk about it you know, to the extent that I'm able. But I had to make decisions. And so the decisions affected this course outline. Okay? So what you'll see here, there are in this outline, and what my plans are for our time together over the next five months, are to look at six major epochs or, or periods in the history of the Christian church. Okay? And so here they are. We have um, persecution, AD 60 to 325. We have councils, 325 to 
to 590. We have popes from 590 to 1517. We have Reformation from 1517 to 1648. We have denominations from 1648 to 1925. And then we have what I'm calling fundamentalism from 1925 to the present. Okay? So that's just one of a million different ways to slice it and dice it. Okay? You will see this subtopics under each of them. All right, so under the first one, entitled Persecution, we have the end of apostolic history, which we will talk about tonight. We have the early fathers, and we have the heretical uh, sect that we will talk about. All right? You'll notice on the right, this, uh, the heading of two big ideas. Again, these are just ways to try to get your arms around and grab a hold of large amounts of material. And so persecution can be broken down into basically two big ideas. And they are that of persecution, and the other one is authority. Authority. Who speaks for God? To be said another way. And how is that determined? Okay, so it's a question of authority. Under councils, it's councils and canonicity. Canonicity. In other words, how, what was the, the process by which the church universally came to agree on the 66 books of which make up the Old and New Testament? Okay. What was the process? What did God use to bring this about? Okay, so we're going to look at three councils, Nicaea, Carthage, and Chalcedon. Then uh, this lengthy period of, t of time, a thousand years, we're calling darkness and withdrawal. We will look at the rise of Islam, a very dark event. We will look at the rise of monasticism, which is withdrawal. And we will look at the rise of the papacy, which is another dark event. Okay, So that thousand years is characterized by the ideas of darkness and withdrawal. During this period of the Reformation, short period, 1517 to 1648, it's reformers and scripture. Okay, So it's, it's the reformers and then it's the recovery of scripture. Denominations, we have division and conscience are the big ideas. In other words, how did we go from <laughs> um, one church to thousands? How'd that happen? How do, how do we get Lutherans and Reforms and Anglicans and Free Church and Baptists and, you know, on and on and on? Bible churches, all of these things. So we'll talk about that. How did they come about? And it actually comes about through conscience, right? Big idea is conscience. And one's conscience unwilling to be bound by what they saw was um, aberration in an existing church movement, okay? And so in the back of your syllabus, there's a whole section. It's on, it begins on page... And if you haven't yet, you know, take some time to just kind of page through these appendices and get an idea for what's there. But it begins on page 71 with family trees. I love family trees. Okay? I, like, I like to look at our own family tree. It's fascinating to me to see. 
But these are family trees. So we have on page 71, the family tree of American Presbyterianism. Then we have the American Baptist family tree. The American Lutheran. I'm just dealing with American family trees, okay? So why? Well, because we live in America. Okay? And maybe that's a good time to say this. We're going to deal with European Christianity and American Christianity. We're not going to try to deal with Asian Christianity. I'm not competent to talk about it. I don't know very much about it. It developed on its own, and it would be a fascinating topic for sure, but I'm not capable of speaking with any kind of clarity to it. So we're just going to focus on Christianity as it spread across Europe and then as it traveled to America. Okay? So we got American Lutherans, American uh, Methodists and Episcopals, American Reformed and Congregational, American Pentecostal. Okay? So that's most of the major flavors. Okay? Kind of a Baskin Robbins of uh, of Christianity, huh? And yes, there are little of this, little of that. Make my own, you know. That happens for sure. Okay. And then the last one is fundamentalism, and the main ideas here have to do with inerrancy and the role of experience in the formulation of doctrine. Okay. So it's the issue of of inerrancy. The inerrancy of Scripture was a major battle. And then, uh, what role does experience play in the formulation of doctrine? Okay, so those are the big ideas that associate with these time periods. Okay, let's see. I don't want to do this. All right, page five. Page five. All right. For the most part, done with that. Okay, introduction. So, quick quiz. How many of you know what happened on July 4th, 1776? Okay, pretty, I'm seeing nodding heads. Okay, so I kind of know what that's about. How about July 1 to 3, 1863? You know what happened on the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of July in 1863 in a small town in Pennsylvania, right? The turning point of the American Civil War, right? the Battle of Gettysburg. Okay, how about December 7th, 1941? Right? The day that it shall live in infamy, okay? That is Pearl Harbor. How about November 22nd, 1963? The assassination of John F. Kennedy. Yep. How about May 31st, 1957? <laughs> it's my birthday. <laughs> it's your dad's birthday. Okay, you got it. It's your dad's birthday. Hey, how did you know it's my dad's birthday? <laughs> yeah, circa 1957. Exactly. All right, so the question is, uh, you know, other than the silly one there, for the most part, you know what those dates are. Those are dates in American history that you are, you know, okay? And they mean something to you. What about the dates that we just looked at? Why were those dates chosen? 
Why were those dates chosen? Well, AD 60 was chosen because that is approximately, circa, the end of what is known as inerrant church history. It is the close of the book of Acts. Okay? It is the close of the book of Acts. So beyond that, um, there is some history of the first century that we can glean from epistles, later epistles, um, but 60, thereabouts, is commonly regarded as the close of what's called inerrant church history. Okay? From that point forward, we launch into errant church history. And you can see this um, when I'm, I'm kind of reading and summarizing, and sorry for bouncing you around, but on page 5, the end of the apostolic history. Right? Right there in the middle with the drawing of the close of the book of Acts, and with it, Luke's record of Paul's first Roman imprisonment, we come to an end of what we call inerrant history. As opposed to errant? <laughs> yes. Indeed. Okay? So just making that designation is why we chose 8060 to begin our study period. 325 is the the date of the Council of Nicaea, right, which is the first, what's known as Ecumenical Council, um, broad council for the church. Okay? So it marks a good boundary period. 590 is, and this is disputable, but not by me, uh, this is the first pope. Okay, So 590 would be the first pope. The Reformation of 1517, we know about the 95 Theses, right? They are located in the back. We will read them, starting on page 53. All 95 Theses are, are reproduced there for you in readable English. Okay, we will read them together, and we will interact with them. Fascinating. 1648 is the date for the Peace of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War, okay? and brought relative peace to uh, Europe and a realignment of, of power, okay? 1925, which is the end of the period of denominations and the start of fundamentalism, is the date of the Scopes Monkey Trial. Again, have to pick a point, that's my point, the Scopes Monkey Trial, okay? So we'll talk about that, and that kind of launches us into the period of fundamentalism, okay? So that's how those dates came about. All right. So back on page five. Yes. Why did I choose the word fundamentalism to, to describe this period of history? I chose it because of fundamentalism in that period of time, in reference to the American church, referred to a segment of the Christian church in response to the Scopes Monkey Trial that withdrew from the mainline denominations, which they believed were going apostate, and reestablished themselves in an interesting way. Many good things came from it, and there's some dark sides to it as well. So I know some of you guys have, have a background in American fundamentalism and Hopefully when we're done, you'll be able to appreciate some of the good things of your legacy, and I know that you're probably highly aware of the negative sides of it as well.
but that's where it comes from. Yep. Yeah, fundamentalism, interestingly, has become kind of a pejorative term, hasn't it, today? But I kind of like it. I'm still a fundamental. I believe in the fundamentals. Okay, we're going to look at a book called The Fundamentals. Uh, yeah, we're, we're moved beyond the fundamentalism. I just haven't come up with another name yet for what's the seventh epoch, right? We're in the 21st century. Speed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it's, it's uh, no fun, too much damn, and not enough mental fundamentalism. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Amen. Yeah. Okay, let's do this. Let's, um, we'll pause there in that paragraph and let's look at this. Can you bring that up? And I'll make it big. So this is a chronology of the apostles. If I turn it this way, does that do a thing? It doesn't. Yeah, here we go. That'll work. Okay. Yeah, this is a remarkable piece of technology for me. I am a I am a technology fundamentalist. Okay, I'm a luddite. So, so this is going to be quite a challenge we get through because I actually, uh, in beginning next week, I have a collection of of um, photos and things that's like this high that we're going to use as we work through this, and I had to figure out a way to get them. So you could see them, and so I figured it out. I bought a high-tech overhead projector. Okay. All that <laughs> I am technologically Amish. I like that, actually. Yes, exactly. So we will be using that. Hopefully, it arrives uh, in time for next week. Because if not, I'm in trouble. But anyway, we've got this for now. So these are just some. These are generally agreed upon dates. Okay, they're not like in stone. There may be even folks in here that may have some differences of opinion on some of this, and that's fine. Okay, so for example, I place the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension or Pentecost at eighty thirty. Okay, eighty thirty three is the other major um, consideration, and it has to do with a complicated chronology of trying to figure out the birth of Christ and, and references to him and so forth. So anyway, for now, it's 30. Okay, fair enough. Uh, that places the conversion of Paul around AD 33, so about three years later. The martyrdom of James, the brother of John, okay, the one of the sons of thunder uh, in, uh, or, uh, yes, brother of John the apostle, one of the sons of thunder at AD 44, so early, early. We have the first missionary journey. Recorded there in Acts 13 to 14, somewhere around 47, 48. The Jerusalem Council, okay, so I guess one might argue that's the first ecumenical council, the Jerusalem Council. It's narrated there in Acts 15, Galatians 2, somewhere around 49. We have the second journey of Paul, 49 to 51. And the third journey, 52 to 56. His arrest in Jerusalem, around 80, 56. And then his imprisonment in which the book of Acts ends with him still imprisoned in Rome uh, sometime around 6061, somewhere in there. Okay. Uh, I believe he did, uh, was released 
from that imprisonment, continued to minister for a few more years, was rearrested, and he and Peter both died in Rome somewhere around 65 to 67. And we're in that period, okay? Paul was beheaded because he was a Roman citizen. Peter was crucified. Peter was crucified upside down is the tradition, yes. Because he did not think he was worthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. So the tradition says his wife was crucified first, and then him. Okay. We find in uh, AD 66, this is a pretty, this is a good date. There's, there's no approximations here. AD 66, we have the beginning of the Jewish wars. They began in Galilee with Rome. And they eventuated in the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. At which point, a million Jews perished. And it was devastating. And the fulfillment of the prophecies of Christ there uh, at the end of Matthew 23. First okay. John, written in around 80, and then the book of Revelation, somewhere 95, 96, when John, the last living apostle, died. Okay. So that's, again, an approximate chronology taking you through the apostolic period. All right? Good? Sweet. All right. So, oh, I missed a little box. First things first. Should have done that. First things first. So, when we refer to the birth of prior, time prior to the birth of Christ, we say B.C., right? Before Christ. And, it, and, it, and so it would be a number and then B.C. So 10 B.C. would be 10 years before Christ. Hang on to that thought. We're coming back to it. A.D., Anno Domini, is in the year of the Lord. And so that appears before the number. So it's correctly A.D. 30. Okay? No, so it's not 30 A.D. It could be, it's 30 B.C. It would be A.D. 30. Okay? And then when we refer to centuries... We use a number that is one greater than the actual year of designation. So, for example, 1517 is the 16th century. Okay? So we are in 2023, but we are in the 21st century. We good? All right. Beautiful. Okay. Now, here's the interesting thing. Where did... Where did this dating notion come from? Like, where did that come from? B.C., A.D., right? Well, you know, birth of Christ. Where did that come from? Well, here's the interesting. It was actually invented by a guy, and his name was Dionysius Exegus, Exegus, E-X-I-G-U-U-S, okay? And he was a monk, who died somewhere around A.D. 525. And he invented this numbering scheme. So he used the evidence available to him in his day, the historical evidence, and he worked from the period of the founding of the city of Rome, which uh, is commonly agreed to be 753 B.C., and then worked forward until he figured out the birth of Christ. And that became A.D. 1, the birth of Christ. Okay? So, 
By the way, city of Rome founded in 753 BC. That's the same time as Isaiah prophesied, just to help you place things in history, okay? So here's the interesting thing, though. He called it AD 1, this date that he had worked out. It took a thousand years for the church to universally accept his numbering system. And he himself didn't even use it. Okay? And it turns out he was wrong. The, the, all of the best evidences to us today say that Jesus was actually born somewhere four to perhaps as early as 7 B.C. Again, depends how you work some of that historical evidences. Okay? So, um, if we say that Jesus was born in, born in 4 B.C., that doesn't mean he was born four years before he was born. It just means that 81 was a bad date. It was a bad date. But um, in the 1500s, it was universally accepted by the church. It's what we use. So we live with it. We live with it. But that's how it came about. So here's the interesting thing. This is how the world calculated uh, dates prior to that time. I thought it was interesting. Um, they used a system called an indiction. All right? I-N-D-I-C-T-I-O-N, an indiction. And an indiction is a period of 15 years. And it was calculated um, from the time of the last Roman uh, census, uh, taxation census. Would, they would count off 15 years, and that would be an indiction. After the 15 years, there would be another census, another tax, empire-wide tax you know, roll. It would, be, it would begin another 15-year indiction. And they would uh, index them by the emperor who was in power at the time. So, for example, and they began with Constantine in 312. That's the first. So it was Constantine in 312 was the first indiction, and then the next 15 years of his reign, and then they start again. So in the 23rd year of his reign, it was actually indiction 8, is how it would have been calculated. What that says to me is that it wasn't as important to them to, to continue to add up things the way we do. To say that, you know, it's 2,000 years have passed and so forth. They just thought differently. They thought in these 15-year time spans. That's all they cared about. Right? Did it happen yesterday? Did it happen, uh, you know, a week ago? Or did it happen five indictions ago? Okay? That's one of the reasons why birth dates in the early period here are squishy. It just wasn't as important to them to record it. Indeed. Indeed. Okay, so, a little tidbit for you. Now, back here in page 5 in the middle. So the period of inerrant history ends here with the end of the book of Acts and supplemented by references in the epistles. But from that point forward, we have to rely on the records of men and women. Okay? And they do not have the benefit of divine inspiration. And thus they are capable, and sometimes did, record things in error. Right? So, but that should not concern us deeply, because we draw our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, not from church history, but from the scriptures. Okay? That's the key point. So, 
how other people who have gone before us understood a passage of Scripture is important. It is informative, but it is not uh, authoritative. In other words, Calvin said this, Luther said that. That's weighty, but it's not authoritative. It doesn't end the discussion. The question becomes is, what does the Scripture say? It's always we have to go back to the Word of God. We have to understand the Word of God. That is our final authority. Okay? And that is a different way, a different authority structure than other systems. Okay? Roman Catholicism certainly stands out to me. It's the tradition of the church that carries weight. They'll say equal with Scripture, but the truth of the matter is it sits over the Scripture. Okay? So, if Athanasius said something, that's good. Glad to hear it. Don't want to dismiss it out of hand. Want to, want to understand it. But ultimately, what does the Bible say? That's our final source of authority. Okay? So we need to use caution and humility when we contradict the opinions of the great minds, but our doctrine comes ultimately from the Word of God and nowhere else. Okay? All right. Let me do this. This is not in your syllabus. And if you want it, I'll copy it for you and hand it to you next week. But I thought it would be worth it to set up the background for this next section, which is persecution. Okay, you can see it here at the bottom of page five, ten waves of persecution. So I think it's worth it for us to spend a little bit of time talking about the Roman Empire. Because when you read the book of Acts, what stands out to you is that, the, is that the church is not on a collision course with the Roman Empire. In fact, the persecution in the book of Acts comes from whom? It comes from the Jews. Right? It comes from the Jews. Uh, when the book of Acts closed, Paul's in you know, his own rented quarters in Rome. He's got free access to you know, guests and, and so forth, and repeatedly through the book of Acts, the Roman authorities, when Paul is brought before them, he says, you know, there's nothing worthy of death in this man. Okay? But, as you can see, and you can just turn and look on page uh, 6, that something happened. And um, they turned a corner and the full weight of the imperial empire began to crash down on the heads of the Christian church in increasing ferocity. And there were what most historians identify as ten successive waves of persecution that became more and more violent, more and more bloody. All right? So, how did that happen? Well, let's just talk about Rome a little bit. Okay? So, founded by general common consensus in 753 B.C., according to tradition by Romulus and Remus, who were two orphaned infants that were supposedly nursed by a she-wolf. All good founding empires have some sort of a, you know, a reasonable fable to get started, and there it is. Um, but apparently, according to the tradition, is the site of the city of Rome is the place where the she-wolf suckled these two orphaned infants. Okay, so why build Rome there? Because, hey, that's where Mama took care of us. So, 
Initially, Rome was ruled by kings. And for 200 years, they were ruled by kings. And then in 1510, there was a massive uprising, just political turmoil that transformed, that was bloody, as all political turmoil is, and it transformed uh, Rome into a republic. So it went from a kingship into a republic with an, with an aristocratic leadership council called a senate. Okay, I just can't help thinking about Star Wars. I mean, it's just interesting, which is, I mean, you know where he ripped it off from. So, yeah, okay. And a deep-seated hostility to one-man rule. Okay? So the idea of a king ruling with that kind of absolute authority was anathema to Rome. It was a republic. They were governed by a senate. The senate was made up of the aristocratic families of Rome. And that is how Rome operated for nearly 500 years. That's unfathomable for us. <laughs> you know, we're, we've not been around half that time. 500 years as a republic. Well, by the time of the first century BC, the, the republic was blown apart by civil war. The empire had grown so extensive uh, that there were all kinds of, of border wars and, and um, generals with their own troops that were their faithful remnant and, and pressing against one another and jockeying for position, almost like warlords. And it eventuated in a man by the name of Julius Caesar who emerged from the heap as the, you know, the main guy, Okay. And uh, his rule didn't last long. It lasted less than a year. And he was assassinated by senators, right? Brutus and Cassius. Et tu, Brute, and you, Brutus. Okay? So he was assassinated. And um, his assassination didn't restore the Republic, though. And in fact, Caesar had chosen a young nephew and adopted him as his son, and the man's name was Octavius Caesar. He rose up in the, in the following the footsteps of his dead uncle. He defeated Brutus and Cassius along with a bunch of other rivals, and he assumed supreme power in 31 BC. Okay. So, in 27 BC, he was given the name Augustus, which means exalted one by the Senate. The month August is named after him. Caesar Augustus was the greatest of all Roman emperors. He ruled for 45 years. He brought rule that brought peace and stability and justice and civilization to a war-torn world. He is the one. He lasted from 31 BC to AD 14. He is the one who appears in the Jesus narrative in Luke 2.1, right? There was, a, there was a census of the entire world, ordered by <coughs> Caesar Augustus. Okay? So from that point forward, it was a republic in, in name, but it was, an, it was run by an emperor. Okay? Now, let's just talk a little bit about what held the Roman, the Roman Empire together, because this is going to set Christianity on a collision course with it. So, Rome shared a common economy, 
it ringed the Mediterranean Ocean, and so the Mediterranean Sea, and you have all those um, seaport towns or cities. They traded with each other, and that economically held it all together. So, for example, wine from Italy was traded with wheat from Egypt. So the citizens of Rome fed, the, fed on the wheat from Egypt, and the grapes from Italy were traded against that. And so that kind of international trade, which required them to suppress the pirates and develop free and safe ocean passage, which Paul benefits from in the spread of the gospel and so forth, um, was a result of that kind of economic trade. They shared a common intellectual culture. The dominant culture was not Roman, but Greek. Interestingly, when Alexander the Great, right, the boy general, conquered the known world, he got as far as Afghanistan. He spread Roman or uh, Greek language and culture everywhere he went. It's known as Hellenization, and Rome adopted it. And the, uh, Latin was spoken only in the western part of the empire, but the predominant language of the Roman Empire was Greek, not Roman. And certainly among the intellectual class, they spoke Greek. Okay. Why is this important? Because the New Testament was written in Greek. Written in Greek. And thus was able to spread throughout the Roman Empire via this common language. Right? We've talked about, well, you probably heard about Roman roads, postal travel, all of the, or, or postal routes, and the ability to safely deliver letters and packages and all those kinds of things. Those are a result of, of Sigurdsir Augustus um, Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that facilitated the, the spread of the gospel throughout the known world. Okay, So, again, in God's good providence, we benefited from these things. The traditional religion of the Roman Empire was pagan. They were pagan. And what that meant is they worshipped a family of gods headed up by Zeus, as he was known in the Greek, or Jupiter, as he was known in the Romans. The people offered sacrifices to obtain the blessings from the various gods who ruled over the aspects of life, the gods of agriculture, business, marriage, politics, war. They would offer various sacrifices to appease them in order to get what they wanted. Okay? The emperor was the high priest of the religion. He was known as the Pontifex Maximus, and he was the high priest of the traditional pagan religions of the Roman Empire. The emperor himself, there was emperor worship, not that he was worshipped as a man, but what was worshipped was what was called the, the divine spirit of the emperor. And you had to offer a pinch of incense to the divine spirit and declare, Caesar is Lord. Okay? And, of course, Christians said there is one Lord and his name is Jesus. Right? So they would not declare Caesar as Lord create a massive conflict. The, in fact, emperor worship and the offering of the pinch would be the equivalent, well, I don't know if we have a modern equivalent, it would, be the, it would be the Pledge of Allegiance on steroids. That kind of an idea, a unifying ritual that everybody did. And if you refused to participate, you stood out. At the same time, there were the Eastern mystery cults circulating. Okay? So Eastern mystery cults were things like Isis from Egypt, Sebele in Asia Minor, Mithras in Persia. They were very popular even in the time of Jesus. 
These occults, uh, these um, mystery cults, appealed to the senses. So the the pagan traditional pagan religions didn't they didn't promise eternal life. They weren't very emotional. They were sort of dispassionate. You offer the appropriate sacrifices. They'll bless your marriage. They'll bless your business endeavor and so forth. But the mystery religions appealed to the senses. And they offered eternal life, which was something the pagan Roman pagan religions did not offer people. So they became increasingly popular. Their, um, their worship was marked by song and dance and music and public processions and religious feastings and ritualistic animal sacrifices and sexual immorality. So they had the whole package. Okay? They were a seeker on, a, on steroids. Yeah, they were seeker sensitive. They offered immortality. They offered immortality to their followers. And traditional paganism had no provision for the afterlife. So this was very appealing to people. Very appealing. I've got a I'm going to read you just a short excerpt on this sensual nature of worship, okay? Just so you get an idea of what we're talking about. So the most common initiation rite was the taroboilum, or boilim, I think. The person being initiated into the cult climbed down into a pit, and a wooden grating was placed across the top. Those above the pit then sacrificed a bull over the grating, cutting off the animal's genitals and placing them in a special vessel. The bull's blood poured down through the grating over the person in the pit, who turned his face upwards so that he could open his mouth and drink the blood as it came streaming down over his head, shoulders, and body. He had to make sure that the bull's blood soaked every part of him. The claim of the mystery cult was that this blood baptism bestowed a new birth, and the gift of immortality on the believer. All the cults promised eternal life after death to their followers. Indeed, it was their greatest appeal. Traditional paganism and emperor worship offered no such consolations in the face of death. Okay, so you can just... It was a very sensual, in a, in a sexual way, but in every way. Okay, so you were initiated by being bathed in blood. Okay. The church had to contend with this. The church in the first century had to contend with this. And the church offered eternal life in Jesus Christ. But we talk, we talk about being washed in the blood. Washed in the blood of the Lamb, huh? Interesting. Philosophically, uh, uh, Rome was Greek, the greatest uh, arguably the greatest Greek philosopher was Plato, and his ideas about God as a supreme being uh, uh, infiltrated the, the church. So he taught essentially that the human soul was, was eternal and was the source of true worth or value, and that the body was not eternal and was a lesser being. Um, container to hold the soul. So, among the inheritance, the inheritance of, of Platonic philosophy, there's a there's a gradation of of how much they despise the body versus the soul. Okay, 
But uh, Platonism affected many of the early believers, and we, you will find this in your book. Okay, You'll find that they had drunk deeply of that themselves, and they had trouble getting rid of some of these ideas. All right? So, that's the background. Page 5 on the bottom. The hostility of the Jewish nation against both Christianity and Rome continued to spiral in the years following Paul's first imprisonment. As this Jewish hostility grew, so it was returned in kind by Rome. Okay. Remember Jesus' words? In Matthew 23, he says, beginning in verse 34, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Okay? Your house. <laughs> Your temple is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away with his disciples and came to the point out of the temple. Uh, they came to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Right? So his his dreadful prophecy of the destruction of the temple and with it the city. The, when the people of Israel of that day refused their Messiah and called for his blood and said, we have no king but Caesar, they... They descended into insanity. They descended into insanity. In fact, Jesus says over in Matthew 12, beginning of verse 43, he says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. The house of Israel was swept clean by the baptism of John. They came out to be baptized in repentance by John. The house was swept clean. But rather than fill the house with the Messiah... They refused him, and when the, and I mean, this is a parable, but when the demons came back, the state became, you know, the state, the last state is worse than the first. In other words, Israel became worse 
than they were before John the Baptist even came. And that manifested itself in this insanity that caused them to decide to um, rebel against Rome. Now, there had been hostility to Rome growing for a very long time. Like, nobody likes to pay taxes. Nobody liked the, you know, Rome bringing their standards into the city, right? Their, their eagle standards into the city. This was idolatry in the eyes of the Jewish people. They could not tolerate it. And these, these bands of zealots, guerrilla bands, forming in Galilee first in the north, um, ginned up enough support to actually launch uh, an insurrection and an attempt to overthrow Roman rule in Israel and reestablish a Davidic kingdom. Well, Rome responded, as Rome always responded, in force. Okay? Think with me about this. If you have an empire that stretches from England in the west to the borders of Germany in the east, to North Africa in the south, all Gaul, which is modern France, and Palestine, and you only have a limited army, you cannot tolerate rebellion. And so the Roman approach was rebellion must be crushed. It must be crushed um, violently and in a way that uh, demonstrates that no one rebels against Rome and gets away with it. Okay? This is part of Jesus carrying his cross, by the way. Okay? You carried your crucifixion, you know, carry your cross, pick up your cross. That's referring to is by carrying your own cross, by them forcing you to carry your own instrument of execution, they were demonstrating to all who looked on, nobody wins. Not, we don't kill you in the, in the middle of the night. We kill you publicly, and you carry your own instrument of execution with you to the place of execution so that all can see. It does not pay through a bolt against Rome. That plays into what happens at Masada in AD 70. Okay? So this bloody war began in 66 in the north in Galilee, and it traveled across the country. The country is about 200 miles long. Eventually, by AD 70, well, actually before that, because the, the siege of, of Jerusalem was long, um, the warlords consolidated in the city of Jerusalem. They were surrounded by the Roman army. It was broken into quarters. Each quarter was, was uh, governed by a warlord. They were constantly fighting and killing each other inside the city over who was going to be the top dog while they're surrounded by Rome. Eventually, the Roman soldiers broke through. And when they did, they broke through into the temple where the Jewish zealots and fanatics made their last stand. And the temple was set on fire. There's questions about whether it was intentionally set on fire or accidentally set on fire. But regardless, it was set on fire. And as it burned, all of the gold leaf that Herod had decorated in that temple that he spent 40 plus years building melted and ran down into the cracks of the stones. And the Romans dismantled the temple to gain the gold rock by stone by stone. They took it apart and they threw it over the wall, the retaining walls, and down into the, into the valley below. And if you go, to, you go to Israel, you can still see the stones from the temple. They're there that Rome cast off. They swept the Temple Mount clean. 
a, a million Jews, according to, to Josephus. Okay, he was a uh, contemporary. He was actually a Jewish general in Galilee who originally was part of the rebellion, was captured and converted, and um, became an apologist for Rome. But according to him, a million Jews perished, and the remainder were dispersed throughout Rome, the Roman Empire. Okay, the See, Josephus is known as a historian, and his history is reasonably reliable, understanding his point of view. Okay, He was a Roman apologist. The final battle was at Masada in AD 70. Masada was, uh, Herod himself was paranoid. He established his fortifications all over Israel. He was never more than 25 miles from a fortification because he didn't trust his own people. And he always wanted to be able to quickly get to a fortification and, and be safe. They were all uh, stocked with foodstuffs and weapons, and, and they're amazing. They've uncovered many of them. Masada was one of them. It, it's on a thousand foot high plateau, and uh, it's impregnable. And there, a group of Jewish zealots held out against the, uh, Rome for months and months and months. And finally, Rome, uh, rather than just leave them alone, Rome spent the, the amount of time and resources necessary to build a causeway a siege causeway until they were able to, to basically move their siege engines, push them up this, this ramp, and breach the city. And when they breached the city walls, they found that all the people had committed suicide. All but two, actually. Okay. So why did Rome invest that much time and energy? Because you cannot defy Rome and live. Okay. So that was the message. Now, the church... The Christian church was a Jewish church at this time. Right? The, the early believers were Jews. Pentecost occurred in, in Jerusalem. And so even though there was a, a Gentile church out there, there was still a massive Jewish church. Maybe as many as 20,000. Well, they read Luke 21, 20 and 21, and they looked around and they said, we're out of here. Okay? So Luke 20, 21 and 22. I'm sorry, Luke 21, 20 and 22. Jesus said, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. And those who are in the country must not enter the city. And they fled. They didn't stay for the fight. That was the, the final breach between Jewish Christianity and Gentile Christianity. And at that point, um, when the temple was destroyed, Judaism, uh, the Sadducees were their place was taken away, Sadducees disappeared, and all was left was Pharisaical Judaism. And it turned in on itself, and it placed an anathema on this uh, formerly Jewish sect. Okay, So the breach at that point becomes uh, irrevocable, unrepairable. Tell you what, rather than launching forward, Let's pause. We will pause there on page six. So when we come back next time, we will begin there on page six 
with the 10 persecutions and what specifically were the charges laid against them. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.